That's what we do 99% yeah. of the shows. 99% of the You're the one percenter. Anyways, hey, it's today's big podcast, guest, big episode stage, you know? 253 with the one and only Charlie Kirk. If you know Charlie or you don't know Charlie, this is a man that's going to be a force to be reckoned with for decades and decades to come. Whether you love him or hate him, you're going to have to deal with him. So if you're <laughs> watching this because uh, you watch a couple of our podcasts and you come in here because you like to post some of the guests that we bring or you support them, this man's not going away. I had a chance to be at one of your fundraisers a couple months ago. I watched you raise 41, I think it was 40, I don't know the number. I thought it was 40 or $41 million it was a lot. in an hour and a half. And he is the founder of Turning Point USA, started it at 18 years old. It's grown into a bunch of different things that they're doing today. Uh, uh, you, 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 you like confrontation. You like, you like debate. You like banter. You like a good fight. You're a fighter. That's the feeling I get from you. So it's great to have you Thank on the podcast. You. I'm a big fan of yours, Patrick. So I love your channel. But more, more importantly, I love your story. And I, I love what you've created. You create a lot of value for a lot of people. I appreciate you. I, and we've had you. Uh, our guys had, have had you at multiple I, it's conferences. It's one of the most amazing things. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to create things. It's hard to create big things. It's hard to create big things over a long period of time. And you've made a lot of people wealthy and yourself wealthy because you earned it. And going to the event in Vegas, I think I did two, one remote, one in person. Just hearing their stories is unbelievable. I mean, these are people from every walk of life, every background, and they have purpose and they have meaning and they own their own business and they're doing really substantial things for themselves and their community. So good on you. Yeah, thank you for that. So for the audience that, by the way, we have a, a biz doc in the house as well. We just came out of two board meetings this morning, back to back. We had to run. I'm like, Tom, <laughs> where are you? He says, I'm walking downstairs. I said, downstairs is not 59.90. Anyways, you have to come over here. Uh, this Thursday, we're going to do a live podcast here with a couple hundred people. Giuliani will be here. Ruben will be here. It'll be interesting. And then we got SauceCast uh, here with us as well. Charlie, for people that don't know you, if you don't mind taking a moment and giving a brief background of how Charlie became Charlie Kirk. Okay. Well, first, I didn't go to college, so that's important in the biography. Um, I've been doing this, it'll be 11 years in June, uh, running Turning Point USA, which is now the largest organization of its kind in the entire conservative movement. Um, my why, why I do what I do, is to try to restore the promise of the American founding, to live in a free society. Uh, we believe the Constitution is the greatest political document ever written. We believe America is the greatest nation ever to exist. And we believe we're failing to teach that to young people which is one of the many reasons why our country is falling apart. Um, and then I also host a national radio show every day, uh, which I'm actually taking off today to help to be with you guys and kind of just have a nice, uh, nice day off. And then also podcasts, which is one of the top five conservative podcasts out there and do a lot on social media as well. So, so if I was in high school with you, 14 years old, let's just say we're in 10th grade, 15 years old. Yeah, Who sure. was Charlie in, in 10th grade? I was very political then uh, and also hyperactive, so that hasn't changed. Uh, Eagle Scout, football <laughs> captain, basketball captain. Uh, didn't sit still well. I definitely would have been medicated if I was in high school today. <laughs> ADHD medication, uh, definitely. But uh, Some I, call it a gift. Some call it a medical. You know, you have an issue. but Blessing uh, and a curse. That's right. So, uh, But I try to channel it for the good, right? Good. Uh, that's what I love about living in a free society that's increasingly less free, but you can make something of yourself in this country. So. Charlie, I, I want to piggyback on something sure. you said that I think was very powerful, and I, I don't want to just skip over it, because I believe you're 30? Uh, 29. 29. So, so you're going to be 30 this year? Uh, in October, yeah. Okay. Happy soon to be Thank 30th you. birthday. Yeah, it's 30, 30. Hi, hi, highly anticipated, I one, guess. One of the things that, that is very disappointing to me as someone who just loves America, left, right, up, down, is actually what you said about you know, young, the younger generation these days and their lack of patriotism mm -hmm. and lack of appreciation for America. The stats are, when, when it comes to polling, um, as far as love of country and patriotism, b baby boomers and older, 73% love America, proud to be American. Gen X, 56%. Millennials, 36%. Gen Z, which I, I don't know if you're Gen Z or a millennial. A millennial you're younger yeah, Gen millennial. Gen Z is far worse than we are, but yeah, that's we my our, point. We got our own 16% proud to be American. Yeah. So, Pat, 
completely hit the nail on the head. Whether you love you or hate you, you're going to be around for the next 30, 50 yeah, I, plus years. I got a, speaking I got a market Gen opportunity, Z. wouldn't you say, Patrick? Exactly. <laughs> you're trying you got to a blue ocean strategy. Uh, you got right a growth there. opportunity. It's in to try to get people but, to love the country the, they live the in. The people that are going to be listening to you, Charlie, are not the boomers. They're, I mean, they're yeah. 65, 75 plus. It's going to be the millennials and Gen Z. How do you get them to love America again and appreciate your message? Yeah, it's, it's challenging. So I actually go to the target demographic themselves. I mean, I visit campuses. I speak with these students and kids. And praise God, I mean, our campus tour this last uh, semester was the most successful we, had, we ever had. We actually couldn't find rooms big enough to fit all the students that wanted to come awesome. to our events, which was great. And look, I have very strong political opinions. We can talk about that if you guys want. But the basic core argument of why we love America shouldn't be political, which is the American founding was an unbelievably unique moment in human history because it was reliant on some classical observations of human nature that made claims against tyranny in the pursuit of liberty, that believing not in sectarianism or tribalism, but instead in the individual and the dignity of the individual, that is, you can disagree at this, but the founders largely believed that it was made in the image of the divine, therefore there's worth and there's dignity of that person. You don't have to accept that, but at least you can accept the idea that you know, the individual is sovereign and matters. And then you build a system around that that has turned into the most amazing society ever to exist. And now we're deciding to end that. So to your point, two points. Yes, the younger generation has deep resentment for the nation for, because they're taught that in the government schools and they're taught that in popular media. And secondly, um, they don't understand or they cannot properly articulate why this is the greatest nation ever to exist in the history of the world. And there's great reasons for it. It's my job to try to convince them and educate them, albeit in 15 to 20 second mm -hmm. sound bites with the attention span decreasing. But I believe, you know, my purpose is to try to make sure my daughter, who's seven months old, lives in a free society. And we are currently heading in the wrong direction very quickly. Okay, so let, let's go with that. Let's go with that because, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people are following Tate. Tate became the most viral person on the internet. Uh, him and I were speaking uh, when he got out of jail, and you know they're now on house arrest, and we're having a conversation uh, about some of the things that's going on. Uh, he went from evolved from being a guy that was an atheist as a young guy coming up. Yeah. Okay, then he started seeing what the Christian, you know, Christian denomination was doing and what they stood for. Said, these are interesting principles. Kind of welcomed it. Then he partially lost respect in the Christian religion, the denomination that started compromising and saying, yeah, we'll accept this, we'll accept that, we'll accept sure. this. What about this? And then he says the only religion that seems to not break when it comes down to their values is Muslim. And then he went and became a uh, Muslim, and that's what he supports. Now, that may be extreme to you, but the part that when I talk to uh, a lot of the youngins who are following him and following mm -hmm. what he's saying, that argument is a good argument to say if you are going to be conservative, if you are going to be a Christian, sure. well, your church is starting to say, yeah, it's okay, Pope, it's okay, you can come in. As long as you bring money, you can come in. You can come in sure. versus the Muslims saying, hey, you can't. So what, what do you say to the criticism the West is getting by a lot of people saying the West is no longer what it once was and— it's past the tipping point, meaning there's okay. no longer a saving yeah. of the West. What do you say well, to I, that? The first part, you're probably right. I mean, we're in a complete terminal decline. And it's hard to disagree with that. A moral decline, economic decline, financial decline, fiscal decline. I don't think we're past the tipping point. To the Andrew Tate part, I think that's a bad reason to convert to Islam. I don't think there's a good reason to convert to Islam. But because there's plenty of uncompromising Christian churches but generally, yes, it is true that a lot of Christian denominations are becoming more mm. like the world and not following the word. Happy to talk more about that if you want. But that, that is the question, is where is the West? And you kind of got to have to take a pulse. There's plenty of reasons for optimism. I'm seeing a kind of renewed sense of patriotism in certain sects. I'm seeing what we're doing at Turning Point USA. I'm seeing parents get more involved in school boards. At the same time, we're living through what Nietzsche predicted in the 1860s, 1870s, and 1880s, where he did not proclaim it, but he stated God is dead. And the next, and again, that's, it's misquoted because people think he was celebrating the, the death of God. He was not. What he was saying is that, hey, you in the West, 
if you are going to replace God with consumerism and the Industrial Revolution and hyper-individualism, be careful what's going to take its place. And we're kind of living through the kind of mixture of synthetic worldviews that take its place when Christianity or a, a cogent Western morality uh, deteriorates. So what do I say to the compromising Christians? Well, stop compromising. And then I, I wouldn't also necessarily say that Islam is attractive as a substitute of that, but I'm happy to explore that. It's, if it's, not, like. about, it's yeah. not about the substitute of that because they, uh, there, there's some stats we looked at a couple months ago on a podcast. We had this guy that was talking about how the, the, you know, underpopulation is the problem, not overpopulation, how the world can handle it. And, you know, and then we looked up the numbers on the podcast and we saw, I'm, I'm going to be wrong by a couple percentage points, but pretty close within a couple percentage points. Out of 100 people that are born in the world, 33 were Christians, 31 were Muslims. But out of 100 people that die in the world, 32 were Christians, only 10 were Muslims. Which means the young, you know, Muslims are having more sure. kids and they're a lot younger, which means by 2035, the world will be led by Muslims, having more Muslims in the world than sure. Christians. And why do you think that message? Because a lot of times you see that message and all you think about is, well, the first thing we think about is, well, it's a Muslim extremist. I mean, every Muslim is a Muslim extremist, which is not. It's a smaller sect of uh, the majority. But if, if, the, if the messaging... What are they doing that their messaging is more attractive for NBA players, football players, Hollywood? Some sure, people yeah. are starting to say, well, I'm, I'm kind of going to lean towards this than Christianity today. Yeah, I don't think we have to speculate. I don't know if you have Cassius Clay up there, which was his name before Muhammad Ali. Yes. Or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. We do. We actually got Cassius Sunburn. Clay up there. Yeah. yeah the, the, the idea of men. Dave Chappelle, by the way. Yeah, Dave Chappelle. Is, is, he, is, is he a Muslim? I believe so. Is that right? I didn't know that. Tyson. Um, what? Tyson. Tyson. Yeah, it, it, the idea, especially black men, being drawn to the Muslim faith is not new because it really does, it's unapologetic in the patriarchy, right? So in a hyper-feminist world, it seems attractive. And again, I mean, Malcolm mm. X wrote extensively about this. I, I mean, I don't subscribe to a lot of the appeal of it because Islam is not true in my worldview, but that's, we could discuss that. I don't think it's actually useful of our time today. But you're, you're hitting on something really important, Patrick, in a world that has gone mad in chaos, people yearn for order. Now, you could be too far in the order direction, which I think Islam goes too far. I do not want to live in a theocratic fascist country. I like having freedom of speech. I like having dialogue. I like private property rights. I like entrepreneurship. That's why I think the West is the best, because you balance order with spontaneity and unpredictability. If you just want order, you can live in Saudi Arabia, but that's not a free society. And But... I think the West has gone way too far away from having order as a bedrock principle. What the founders tried to establish in the Constitution, especially because of the world that they built it in, is how do we have liberty, but also we have the rootedness of eternal wisdom so that liberty does not become licentiousness. And that's exactly what we're living through, is that it's no longer the pursuit of what is good, it's the pursuit of what makes me feel good. And those are two different things. So people like Tate or people previously in the 60s or 70s, I mean, you could list a lot of people that convert to Islam because it's very attractive because the strong man archetype is not just present in Islam, it is demanded in Islam that the man is the, not just the head of the home, the head of the society. And so it's very attractive in a world that's gone mad. I think that's the wrong answer, to be very, just to be clear, but I can understand why certain people would be gravitated towards So who, who would you say today is the most famous non-pastor Christian in the world that's getting others to say, I also want to be a Christian. I, I don't mean Joel Osteen. I don't yeah. mean if you go to some of the big pastors that we have. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a guy that's in Hollywood, that's in the NBA, that's in the MLB, that's in music. Yep. Who are some of the biggest ones that are converting, that are converting? Yeah, I mean, I, maybe Tim Tebow, but he's not exactly as successful. But you're, you're pinpointing something really powerful here, which I totally agree with. First of all, if you find, I mean, Justin Bieber is not exactly someone I would consider theologically sound, right? But at least he says good things about Jesus. <laughs> but the Christian world is lacking in the cultural figures that embrace the worldview. Whereas in the 50s or 60s, you had John Wayne. 
You had every major act, not every, but you had Joe DiMaggio. You had, before that, Babe Ruth that were outspoken Christians. And now you look in the world, it's either secularism or just kind of as agnosticism. And any Christian celebrity that might be outspoken, they have to always preface it with social liberalism. I would say maybe Mark Wahlberg. He's done a pretty good job. I was just going to say Wahlberg. You yeah. saw what he did on I think that's Ash beautiful Wednesday. what he's done with yeah. the, you know, the Catholic faith. I'm not moved Catholic. to Nevada. Explain why he moved out of L.A. to go to Nevada with his family. And he's yeah. thinking about turning Vegas yeah. into the next think Hollywood. About it. He even just caught some heat. Of course he did. From just doing the Ash Wednesday. A, they say he's a gay hater or whatever. But, I mean, but, but, that, but this is exactly where I'm going with this. Yeah. So where I'm going with this is the following. Is... So, uh, so yeah, that where, image right there. whereas a lot of people who are uh, um, Christians will go and they'll go in a community that's safe and they'll talk to one another where it's a safe place, whereas Muslims will go out there and they'll baptize and they'll convert, where, you know, if you, if you look at the two and you'll say, well, one is staying quiet about it, the other one's being bold about it. One is advertising why he is, the other one is not. But at the same time, the media will defend Muslim, well, but that, the media that, will not defend Christianity. Yes. The, the sports teams will say, hey, you have to be a little bit more understanding about the Muslim religion, but Christianity, they Correct. can get shots. So how did that happen? The evolution of where Christianity went, hey, the Judeo-Christian, the great nation, America, yes. look at the values and principles that we have. Where did the fall happen? Boy, that, that's a powerful question. It's hard to pinpoint a certain year, but there's certainly an era in the 60s or 70s these revolutionaries took control of a lot of institutions and the zeitgeist, the spirit of the times, got perverted and changed. I encourage anybody to find me a Netflix, Amazon, or Hulu documentary or film in the last 10 years that portrays someone that is a Christian in a positive light. And in fact, this was pinpointed recently. I can't remember who. An actor came out um, and he said, hey guys, why is it the pastor always has to be like the abuser or the embezzler or the, and you think about the archetype, right? The archetype is if you see a Bible in an Amazon film, you almost can assure that that person is going to be a villain or at the very least a hypocrite. Rarely is that the person that is going to be acting ethically, acting morally, and that's a complete change. And it's done rather subversively, right, in our, in our culture. And so, but here's the thing, kind of the post, post-60s worldview, the moral view that came in in the post-60s, and it didn't really set in until now, it took 60 years, is hyper-individualism. And I'm all for entrepreneurship and for people to succeed, but you must balance that, you must counterbalance it with duty and obligations. If it's all about just the pursuit of your own pleasures and your own delights, you will be not just empty, I think you're going to be miserable. And so we build an entire society, I think, on this very dangerous moral pretext and we wonder why we have the most depressed, suicidal, anxious generation in history. I, I totally sympathize with every accusation of American Christianity that you could imagine. They could be hypocritical. Their churches are too big. They don't give enough to the poor. I think some of that is a little silly. But it is a fact that as we have turned our back on American Christianity with the roots of it, that we are less free, we are more confused, and we are filling it with these other fake religions that we could talk about. The religion of anti-racism, the religion of scientism, right? Even earth worship at times, which is hyper, you know. Global warming. Yeah, environmentalism. Yeah. And so there's a great book by Tom Holland. He calls it Dominion. It's not a great title, but he, it's Holland with an E. But yeah, it's how, the, how Christians remade, uh, revolutionized the world. I encourage everyone to read it. And he's actually a secular agnostic who argues that what we consider to be common sense what we consider to be normal is a traditional inheritance from the Christian history. And you might not like Christianity, you might not believe Jesus is the king of the world, I do, but you should at least accept that if you remove Christianity as the bedrock of your civilization, be careful what you fill it with, because currently we're filling it with garbage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so a couple things based on what you just said. One, I, I, I saw Andrew Schultz the other day. You know Andrew Schultz, the comedian. I don't know if you're familiar with Some Andrew familiar. Schultz. Yeah, he's, he's, to me, I think he's one of the most talented comedians. I can watch his clips on replay, and the guy makes me laugh over and over. He's There's really, only a couple really guys that make good. me do that. I've he, probably seen his clips. I just he, he, You, you know in. who he is. Yeah. He's, he's incredible. Cool. He said the other day he went to church. Yeah, yeah, he's great. 
And he says he went to church the other day. He says in the first three minutes of being in church, he started crying. This isn't, that's not his brand at all. Mm-hmm. Andrew wow. Schultz's brand is not to this say wasn't a that. Joke. No, this was no. not a joke. He was being serious about it, right? Now, if you go to the Justin Bieber story, and we can go to Hillsdale, you know, not Hillsdale, Hillsong. but uh, Hillsong and all yeah, that and I, stuff. I saw that first yeah. I saw a lot of it. Yeah, yeah. so a, a lot of that, the, the challenge then becomes also to say sometimes, the, the, uh, you know, it's overly judgmental on who's going to be the Christian to help bring the brand and, you know, bring others towards it. There's a challenge with that as well. But, you know, for me, I saw Wall Street Journal's article recently came out with values. I'm sure you the saw that as well. Yeah. The collapse of the American values. Patriotism, community right. involvement, having children and going to church have just descended in meaning. But money is up. Money is up. Yeah. And that's that hyper-individualism. That's what you were talking and, and about. And yeah. again, I am a capitalist. I think that markets work. But they must be in harmony with other duties that make the money meaning meaningful. Otherwise, yeah. it's just nothing more than pleasure or things that will erode in dust. So it must point towards something. You must aim high. That was the Western ideal, right? And that's why the Declaration is such a beautiful document. It mentions God four times. And in fact, in the end of the Declaration, it's basically a prayer. We don't teach this to our kids. It's an appeal. It says, we appeal to the supreme judge of the world. And they're pointing high to something larger than themselves. It's very platonic, to use a phrase that was earlier, that there's things that we can't quite feel, that cannot be looked at in a, you know, cannot be looked at in a microscope. But we know they're real. We know love. We know justice. We know mercy. We know kindness. We know compassion is real. And, in fact, we need to build a society around that. What the postmodernists and the post-structuralists have done post-1960s is they basically say if it's not material, if you can't see it in cause and effect, it's not real. And that's, that's, an, that's a tragedy to believe. And so, yes, the, the byproduct of that is, so you have two things happening at once. America pulls back from its values that wants to find Can you it. go to the uh, yeah, chart? It's, it's, uh, you go to it's very powerful. But then the, they kind of buried the lead. In fact, they didn't incorporate it, which I just want to reiterate. It is a fact that we are the most depressed, most suicidal, most anxious, most medicated, most alcohol-addicted in history. Now, you might say, well, Charlie, it's causation and correlation. Hard to say that they aren't connected. Hard to say that if patriotism, religion, community involvement, having kids collapses, and all the negative indicators skyrocket, that there isn't some sort of relationship there. What, Tom, what, what do you think needs to happen for uh, a man to get on his knees and say, I need God? What do you think needs to happen for that to take place to a nation? Great crisis builds great response in the heart of any man. Yeah. After 9-11, you saw the unification of America in, in an amazing way. Because whenever you have a great crisis, you, you will inherently point back to a great tenet or a great truth. And what happened on 9-11, the great truth was nobody messes with the greatest country in the world. And I'm part of that. And I'm proud to be part of that. And I'm coming together with my neighbors. And I'm upset about this. Yep. And I'm healing together. And I'm mourning together. And I'm angry together. Together, the word together keeps coming. In the age of moral relativism, as we see here, everybody's truth is okay. So starting in 1968, 69, if you were to study that, there were about four things that came together that make it very understandable for a crack in the heart of the populace and the population. One is... You know, you have the death of Bobby Kennedy, the death of Martin Luther King. You've got the summer of love. You've got the senseless, these people that believe the senseless sending to war of, um, of our young men. If you, if you didn't get into college, going to war, tough. You know, if you manage to get into college, oh, so if your family could get you into college, you don't have to go to war. Well, you know, talk to Al Gore and, and W about that. They both took advantage of that privilege to stay out of the war. And there was this crack that happened there. You had the loss of these leaders. You had the, the also the loss of faith in the, in, the, in the elders of the time because what was happening there and the great summer of love where everybody thought, well, then all your truths will be okay. That was well intended. But what happened in the middle of that is if everybody's truth is okay, PBD, then there's no one ruler for standard for morals. There's no one ruler for standards of what is patriotism, what is faith in America, or what is good, or what do we do for our community. And suddenly, everybody's truth is okay, and you can't judge me, becomes the, the, the boomerang that comes back. The unintended consequences is you lose control of the whole thing. And so I think great crisis is needed, what will bring America back together. And unfortunately, great crises are usually very painful in their own right. Can I say, of I course. I that was really beautifully put. I'm 
you, I didn't even think about the, the college enrollment draft thing prior. The issue, though, Patrick, is that if you have moral chaos, tyranny comes next. And there's a totalitarian impulse that is running through our country. We call it identity politics, political correctness, is that the, 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 the answer to this will not be more freedom or more liberty in the short term. It's that it's going, we're going to need instruments of meaning. So then we're going to need somebody to tell you what to do, which is one of the reasons why I think this COVIDian fascism was accepted by so many Americans for so long. And so you get strong leaders, quote unquote, strong leaders, if the moral fiber of your country decays. If I can just add to that, I, I believe everything you're saying is accurate. I, I also think that there's sort of a messaging problem because you talked about the Joel Osteens of the world or even the Mark Wahlbergs of the world. Who do you think is more likely to convert the everyday person to love America and to fear God again? A Joel Osteen or a Mark Wahlberg type? I would argue that you need this in the pop culture zeitgeist. Yeah. It's not going to take a religious leader or some sort of apostle that's going to convert everyday Americans to start loving Americans again or go to church more often. It's not going to be a religious leader. You see the fastest growing religion in America these days is atheism yeah, and non, agnosticism, nuns, right? Yeah. And non-denominational or just non-believer. Mm, yes. Um, so we need to kind of like what you're saying, we need to make loving America again and American values yes. and Judeo-Christian values pop culture and cool again. And until that's done, I think we're going to have this same conversation for years and yeah, years and to so come. My argument is that the American founding is the great rallying point. I think that it's so beautiful. It's so exceptional. It's so rare in human history. And it also, I think people yearn to actually love the place they live in. I know that's an unusual thing to say. I think people actually want an excuse to love America. And so I think the promise of the founding can be that great unifying. That you could disagree on tax policy, disagree on immigration, but let's at least agree that these founders were onto something very big, bold, and beautiful. Hmm. And we're recipients from it. And then understand what that is. We get a real conversation about that. If, I can, if I can give you one yeah. thing, Britt, that if that's the answer. Which it might, may or may which not it, be. Okay, yeah. which it is. So you remember the movie The Patriot? Yeah, with, with Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson. Who, by the way, is a Christian. That We put him okay. on the list. He's good. I mean, talk about saw a what movie. happened to him after Passion to the Christ. Yeah, well, well he's doing number two now. Yeah. But that movie, I don't know if that uh, preceded Passion of the Christ. It was it might probably have. before. And yeah. Braveheart, are you kidding me? Yeah. But that guy made loving America Amen. and fighting for America cool and in the pop culture. So it's going to take something like that, kind of what I was saying, in the pop yeah. culture, to make young Americans. Gen You're Z, 16% is not proud to be American. You're not going to get them to start loving America by saying, hey— Read the Declaration of Independence, no, I, I, buddy. I, I acknowledge that. Yeah. I, I'm not even, uh, trust me, try to get them to read the, <laughs> the preamble to the Constitution, right. let alone the first paragraph of one of the course human events that comes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands that have time to another. To get them to even read that, like, what does yeah. that even mean? I'm talking about the eternal, compelling truth behind it, right? That maybe, and if not, then mm. we're a lot farther gone than I would like to believe. But I totally agree. I mean, Tom Cruise's Top Gun Maverick, Praise God that that was the number one movie in the last year and a half. Yeah. I think that is evidence in my favor that people enjoyed kind of the pro-Americana vibe, yes. right? The kind of, you know, we're going to go up against the bad guys. Now, there was no bad guy. Who Name the bad guy. No, that's what was, it was so just, interesting. It, it was, was no it, country. They didn't identify it. it, it, it almost but it was just it was about America. intentionally abstract yes. almost, right? And it was about rallying behind a team. And it really didn't pander that much to identity politics. I mean, it was a little bit throughout. But it was largely a movie that could have been made in the 80s or 90s, which is yeah. why it was so successful. You, you, know, you, know, you know what I think needs to happen. This is my ideas Okay, on this. First of all, for me, uh, uh, the enemy, if you study enemy, how it did whatever it did, it always divided. If, I, if, a, if a person, today we're having a meeting upstairs, we're having a manager's meeting, and I said, the biggest challenge in a, in a marriage, who's the biggest enemy in a marriage? The biggest enemy is when the spouse becomes the marriage. It's always better to have an external enemy than an internal enemy. The worst type of enemy is the internal enemy. We have internal enemies right now. And the way they're doing it is they, they're going, they're so brilliant, dark but brilliant. They're going straight to the top of influence and they're crippling them. Straight to the top. But did you see what he did? But did you see what she did? But your parents, they don't know what they're doing. Your parents don't care about you. If your parents came out, they would probably judge you. You know what? This is how we are. We are a little bit more this way. So they're dividing 
to the point of influence, okay, whatever the influence is. Now, Mel Gibson may be a guy who I can watch all day, his movies. I think he's fantastic. I think it's funny. He can do funny. I think he can do, you know, drama. He can do anything. Put him anywhere, he's going to do great, right? But I think you need to get somebody like the face of the NBA, the face of the NFL, the face of Hollywood. Like, it needs to be a rock type. It needs to be a Michael type, a LeBron type, a Brady type, a person like that that's willing to talk. So if they're going to work that way to come Mm -hmm. and take the influence from the top, you got to go get some of the guys at the top. So two things. Mahomes is an outspoken Christian, so that's a good start. And I know for certain he loves America. He's probably a conservative. I don't want to out him here because he would lose a contract. And boy, (laughs) isn't that the case, is that they make harsh punishment swift if you defect from the regime party line. And just look at what happens if you dare even step out of line a little bit. You have to do these long apologies, and you have to... I mean, look what they try to do to Rogan for even questioning some of the COVID stuff, right? you got to stand up, though. But you, no, you... I agree with you. I'm saying that the people too big to cancel, the Mahomes... The, and Brady is a right-winger. I mean, he's a total pro-American conservative guy, and he, you know, he's too big to cancel. Now he's retired, so maybe he'll be able to speak out more. But I completely agree... I mean, Tiger Woods is a, is a pro-American guy. You know, he doesn't hate this country. and he, I'm sure he doesn't stand for the BLM stuff. There's a difference between being what you are and promoting it and driving it. There's a big difference between being what you are and driving it and promoting it because other young kids are watching you to want to be converted. Anyways, we got a lot of the stories I want to get into. A uh, few things, Tom. I'm looking at Wall Street Journal today. Top three stories. Elon Musk has revived the idea of digital banking to turn Twitter into a company worth more than $250 billion, an aspiration that faces regulatory hurdles and challenge of uh, entrenched players. Second story, Tesla delivered a record number of vehicles in the three months of the year, first three months of the year, when the company slashed prices to stimulate demand in a cooling car market. Okay, three McDonald's is temporarily closing its U.S. offices this week as it prepares to inform corporate employees about layoffs undertaken by the burger giant as part of a broader company restructuring. Tom, going to uh, uh, Elon Musk, operating those two companies, Tesla and Twitter, what are the likelihood you think, because right now Twitter's what? They, they came back, they, their shares, they're showing $22 billion valuation, whatever the number was. A guy like this running two different companies, what's the likelihood of both of these things becoming a reality? Meaning Tesla going to become the company he wants to build and Twitter become that quarter-trillion-dollar com- quarter company? Well, I, I look at his background, and if you told me that he was going to make those four companies successful when you add you know, space exploration and other things to it, uh, I would have said you're crazy. But I think this is this guy's just a special guy, and I think he's putting the teams around him. He's been unafraid to um, cull the herd at Twitter headquarters. And I think both of these things are going to be a reality, and he's not going to do it single-handedly. And what he's doing right now is he is pulling back on Twitter and then building forward with the people that are with him. And I think both of these things are absolutely going to be a reality. And you have to remember, where he's going with Twitter it's, it's not really a long path to that. It's called the super app. And we see people talking about the super apps that are available in Asia concept. that do so many things. Yeah, that, and that are also banking centers. And I think he's uh, you know, been part of a past organization that comes to mind, I think, that was uh, a pretty successful center of banking. And I think what he's really talking about here is I'm going to make Twitter a super app, and I'm also going to make Tesla successful. And I believe him. Charted. Did he come out and say that? Did he want to make this into a super app? He's he... talked about it before. He's talked he said about that? it before, yeah. So a question for you, Charlie. So imagine what if, let's do three what ifs, okay? What if Musk doesn't buy Twitter? What if Spotify dropped Rogan? What if there is no Rumble? What would happen today if there weren't for those three companies? Uh, we, we would be in a far, far worse spot than we are now. Yeah, I mean, if Musk didn't buy Twitter, first of all, I wouldn't have been able to prove that I was on a Twitter blacklist because Elon put out the Twitter I files that, and yeah. I had the do not amplify tag. So that's number one. Wow. Praise God we have Rumble. Did you know that? 
I did not know that. Yeah, Who a, else was on that list? Uh, Dan Bongino that we know of. Uh, it's actually my pinned tweet. It says, I was placed on Twitter's blacklist. <laughs> wow. Uh, and and it, you, you learned that just a few months ago, well, one well, of the Twitter files? So, one of the Twitter files that was leaked and reported on by Barry Weiss showed that there was a specific threat assessment tag put on my Twitter account that said, quote, do not amplify on my account. It was a shadow ban without a shadow ban. So Jack Dorsey lied under oath in front of Congress. So you weren't banned, you just weren't amplified. It said do not amplify, yeah. And okay. to, to a day I could show you, because we used to have the fourth largest engaged Twitter account on the planet, according to Axios. We were averaging about 135,000 retweets a day. We really understood the harmony, the platform, and we used it nonstop. It's kind of how we made a name for ourselves. And then like overnight, we went to 1,000 retweets a day. And we now know why, because we were placed on a Twitter platform. It's a big list. difference, by the way, from 135 to 1,000 retweets a day. It's a scale of 100, right? You saw the same thing on TikTok. Pat saw the exact same thing. Oh, they did the same thing yeah. as well. Pat yeah. and I were talking to each other. Do you remember the, uh, the termination day where, they, where all of a sudden a bunch of followers disappeared? Oh, yeah. Pat and I were on the phone call. They, Pat, have you looked at your, your Twitter? I just looked at mine. I just lost 3,000 followers from yesterday to today. And now you can go back and you can look at any of the trackers in here. Um, you know, Social Blade or any of them, then you can it's see great, that though. day. But, but the point is, the fact that, I, I, the point Shadow I want to go back to is, go, mm -hmm. actually, I actually want you to think about it. Let's, let's try to paint a picture for the audience. Musk doesn't buy Twitter. Spotify drops Rogan. Yep. Rumble isn't there to scare the crap out of YouTube saying, hey, if you, don't, if you abuse the talent, there's another option for That's them. Right. Okay. What does America look like if those three events don't we, happen? We would look even more like East Germany, and we're looking like East Germany right now. I mean, it, Rumble <laughs> is one of our great hopes for free speech online. Full disclosure, I'm a shareholder in Rumble. I bought their stock, so I, I'm not pushing the stock. I'm just saying what they're doing is a very, very magical thing to push back against the Leviathan that is YouTube. If Spotify would have canceled Rogan, he probably would have landed on his feet. He probably could have done his own thing, but it would have showed that we at Spotify will not allow any sort of dissident opinions or dissent. I personally think Rogan might not renew his Spotify contract. I would love to see him do his own thing and just s send out his stuff. I think he's big enough. He's, he's America's greatest podcaster. He's super easy to listen to. Fabulous interviewer and just really interesting. That's my own personal opinion. I think he's bigger than Spotify. In fact, I, I was one of the few people that think that Spotify underpaid him. I think he's a billion-dollar talent. I'm, I know that sounds wild, but he has so much power in the zeitgeist. He's so good at what he does, and not to mention he can get any guest he wants at any time, and he has a unique format. So those three, those components, praise God that Twitter is now owned by Elon. It's freer than ever before. There's still a lot of work to do on the platform. It's still not, it still has sort of quirks, and I don't like their new verification thing. It drives me crazy that almost anybody can get verified, but that's just me. I think it's kind of weird. Um, but speech online, believe it or not, in the last year has become more free, not less free. Of course. It's one of the few mm -hmm. things in society that's actually heading the right direction, yeah. which is why they have to try to get this Restrict Act passed. The Restrict Act in D.C. where they're saying it's going to ban TikTok, it's all nonsense. What they're trying to do is create a per precedent or a prerequisite to make speech less free online. We as people that love America and believe in dialogue and a free and open internet mm -hmm. have actually had a pretty good 18 months. They're going to try to use the bipartisan hatred of TikTok as a way to try to ban Telegram, Rumble, and Twitter. All three of them have foreign components. Telegram was founded by a Russian, Rumble was founded in Canada, and Twitter has shareholders like the Saudis that own shares. Under the Restrict Act, the Secretary of Commerce could ban all three based on what they're about to give the power to. And it's probably going to pass, thankfully, because we're sounding the alarm on it's the patriot act on steroids for social media companies yeah look it's right there i mean that's the actual that's literally the quote and that's salon.com which is a communist rag that even agrees with me i mean i hate tiktok i think it's digital fentanyl but i think that we're gonna have to live with tiktok being a thing maybe sold to an american company and onshore that'd be the best solution because giving dc unprecedented censorship authority in a time when the internet is becoming freer would be a big mistake you think TikTok should be banned? Is that something? In the that... ideal world, of course, yes. But we, we have to also look in reality where you give DC a little bit of this power, they're going to use it to ban us in another way. I think TikTok is bad for society and bad for humanity, but I don't always get what I want. So I'd rather have a free open internet with mm -hmm. this really bad app 
that hopefully can be on board in America because they will try to use the same power to then restrict Telegram, Rumble, or Twitter. But is there, is there this yearning for this, what, you, what, what act is it called, the Restrict Act? Oh, yeah, no, it's, it has is 21 co-spans. Year- okay. 21 Who, co-sponsors. Who's leading that? Um, Republicans and Democrats. You can look at the co-sponsors. There's more Republicans, actually, than Democrats sponsoring it. Um, Lindsey Graham, Shelley Moore Capito, Susan Collins. You can go through all the co-sponsors. Or John Thune is the main Republican. If I, yep, there it is, John Thune. And then uh, Tammy Baldwin from Wisconsin. I'm super cynical and jaded. Anytime you have mass bipartisan support for anything in D.C. means a lot of lobbyists are pushing for something that's probably going to be bad for the country and our freedom. I hate to be so jaded, but that's just a general rule. And there's exceptions, obviously. I mean, there's some opioid stuff that's passing. That's some good legislation. This is confirmation of the rule, though. This is an awful piece of legislation um, that would make our ability to speak online highly restricted because it's literally in the name. The Restrict Act. So what could they do to companies? So uh, forget TikTok. What could they do to a rumble? Shut what could they do to... That's, read the bill. It's on, it, they could police our speech. It is Patriot Act 2.0 using the guise of foreign adversaries, giving all the power to the Secretary of Commerce, who no one really knows who she is. She's Gina Raimondo. It's fine. It could be anybody. But effectively delegating that authority to say if there's any sort of foreign policy concern... We can then use that power to close down the app, restrict their activity, or monitor the activity. And you could just imagine, and by the way, the people pushing this are the tech companies, Google and Facebook. And I said, well, why would Google and Facebook push this? Well, Google is being threatened via YouTube shorts with TikTok. Facebook is being threatened on Instagram by TikTok. But Facebook wants more than that. Facebook would love to be able to ban Telegram because people would use WhatsApp. Mm. This is all blatant mm-hmm. cronyism disguised as a bipartisan bill to try to stop the CCP from mining our kids' data. We should try to do something to fix that. Make them onshore it, sell it to an American company. The idea of giving the federal government censorship powers of a social media app, mm-hmm. I think it's a really bad idea. For, for me, for me, ahead. it came down when I went to look at this, and I was expecting to see a, like a five-page tariff, right? Tariffs are usually three to five pages. Aluminum shall be defined as aluminum, and it will have a 16% tariff, and within five pages you take care of it. So I was expecting, Pat, to see five pages on this because of the threat posed by a foreign entity having access to personal information, including potential financial information of the American people. It shall be impugned, right? That's the word you look for. I was looking for five pages. And all of a sudden you look, and this is hundreds. Wait a minute. Why does it need? Why do you need hundreds of pages to effectively put a negative tariff and to shut TikTok for the reasons of harvesting American information on foreign soil for nefarious means? And then I looked into it and I said, wait a minute. This is a whole this is a weaponization of government that is being advocated by by today's corporate interests coming from Facebook. What Facebook doesn't understand is there's an other side of the rock here. Because they're not going to be where they are forever, nor are their competitors going to be forever. And they are one generation and a black swan from being on the receiving end of this thing. Hundreds of pages. It should be a five-page tariff. The next concern we can get, uh, uh, this this is uh, uh, wild because we saw what Patriot Act did. It's a way of bullying the average person and going after anybody at any given time. And I've had a chance to interview a lot of these mobsters. It was done from a good standpoint to get them, you know, put them in jail. And a lot of these guys at New York City was very happy, the fact that Rudy was able to do it. But then that opened up a way for the government to say, man, we can really go after a lot of different people. Go after Trump. They Everybody. Use, they use the Patriot Act to go after Trump as president. Yeah. So they, let's, let's talk about that. Well, what's going on right now with Trump? Um, I can pick any of these stories and, and read them. Yeah, go ahead. Trump rages about being uh, indicted in social media posts about his indictment, says the U.S. is now a third world country. You know, uh, 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 Donald Trump can still run for president indicated. after his indictment. Yeah, yeah, I know, indicated. I saw that. Indicated. He wrote that. <laughs> No, yeah, no. yeah. Hey, it, it, if I was indicted, I wouldn't have my spelling very precise. <laughs> okay? I think we got, got to give him a little bit well, of mercy. So, on what do you, what are your thoughts about what's going on his, here? Uh, what, what are your thoughts about what's going on here? Oh, I mean, it's it's an outrage. I mean, it's I called it something similar to illegal Pearl Harbor, where this has never been done before. We'll never forget that it's done. And they're first of all, they're directly interfering with an election. You don't like Trump? Beat him at the ballot box. Why do you have to do it this way? Second of all, this is not a felony. 
what they've outlined. We haven't seen the indictment yet, so maybe I'll be corrected, but I don't think I will be in this way. Based on all public reporting and all leaks from the grand jury, this is a paperwork area era that might be a misdemeanor, might, and upgraded to a felony. While Alvin Bragg has downgraded 52% of previously classified felonies as misdemeanors. So the trend in New York is not felonies. We're going in the misdemeanor direction. We're going to, you know, we're going to say that if you loot or if you burn or you steal or you do all these things, yeah, reduced by 52%. Um, that, yes, yeah, downgraded 52% of felony cases to mm -hmm. misdemeanors compared to 39%. So it's, yep. it's, it's legit. 32% different, yeah. Yeah, and so he's increasing it now. And so there's a term for this. I didn't come up with it. It's Sam Francis called anarcho-tyranny, which is the basic things that the nation needs to do to keep yourself safe. Holding murderers accountable, drug trafficking, arson, stuff that we all don't agree with. That we're, we're loosening the sentencing and the policing there, but we're increasing the tyranny for political favored crimes. And so, of course, the political hit job, they're using this for political purposes. But I think there's, a, I think there's something a lot deeper here going on. The real crime that Donald Trump committed was winning the 2016 election. And we know this in the psychological literature, the power of trauma, right? And we know, we know about post-traumatic stress syndrome, PTSD. It's not that different. They were, the left in New York, the New York City elite, were legitimately traumatized the night that Hillary Clinton was supposed to break that glass ceiling at the Kravitz Center. And that has now become almost a psychologically defining event for them where they swore, to, they swore a blood oath seven years ago. We're going to get you, and it's going to, no matter what, we're going to make you indicted in the same place that you stole that night from us. Because Amy Coney Barrett and Kavanaugh and Gorsuch and all the successes that Donald Trump achieved was not supposed to happen. So I think this is more a revenge than almost anything else. It's petty, it's personal, it's pathological, and it's political. Daily Mail says Trump doubles his lead in Republican primary Record-breaking, you know, raising money. People are coming out of supporting him. Some people are saying no matter what, he's going to end up winning. Story came out that they want him to be, uh, uh, he wants him to do 30 days in jail. They're trying to get him to go do time. For a gag order. For a gag order, yeah. yes. All of this stuff that's going on. Now, here, here's kind of how I process this. You know, if you, if you go after someone's father and you kill someone's father, but he's got two, three surviving sons, it's game over. You know, back in the days, if you took out a guy, you had to take out his sons because you did not want any revenge to be taking place. Let's say you win with Trump. Let's say they win oh, with Trump sure. or what okay. they're doing. Yeah. Let's say they do. How many people have they given birth to or waken up right now that are saying, now that you did this, watch to see what we're going to do 10, 20, 30 years from now? Yeah, that's a rational argument. And they, they don't think that way. I mean, look, the the whatever you want to call it, the deep state, the elite left, taking out presidents by non-democratic means has been done before. They did it to Nixon, right? They attempted to do it to Clinton, and he survived in a lot, it, it, because he made a deal, I think, with the national security state. They've done this. The, Obama was smart enough not to wage war on the security. He did whatever the CIA wanted, whatever the FBI wanted. And then they tried to do it to Trump three times. First, with the Patriot Act precedent of the FISA court, which was completely unconstitutional, where James Comey and Peter Strzokstroke Smirk, they colluded together illegally to get a FISA warrant to spy on a sitting president's, a soon-to-be president's campaign, and also then a sitting president, and trap Michael Flynn. Then the first impeachment over a phone call, then the second impeachment over January 6th. I mean, this guy has been attacked at every possible non-democratic vector you can imagine. Because I think there is a fear that they will not be able to replicate what they did in 2020 again. Whether you think it was fraud, which I certainly believe, or not, we can all agree what happened in 2020 was unusual. That's, that's a fact. It was the, the amount of mail-in ballots, the amount of private money from Zuckerberg, $400 million, drop boxes, kind of confusion. No one really knew what was happening with COVID, and it was almost like the make-it-stop election. I think there's a great fear that Trump might win in 2024, and we have to take him off the chessboard immediately. Consequences be damned. For, for someone like you, where you are, 
where uh, uh, I, by the way, these two screens, Jorge went down. If you want to bring them back up, we don't see them. So for someone like you, I was at your event when I was at the e event and I was watching some of the people saying, hey, $4 million, $2 million, $100,000, you know, half a million dollars. And, and you saw some folks that said, hey, uh, some of you are worried about wanting to give money because you're thinking, you know, Charlie's a part of a Trump camp or this or that. And some of you are DeSantis people here. Whether you are or you're not, you know, he is doing some values that are good for you. How are you positioned right now to be where you are? You sure. got Trump. It's a very complicated position you're in because, uh, you know, the smile yeah. on your face it says a story. Because on one side. It's never a dull moment. Yeah, it's never a dull moment. But you're in a you're in a pickle here yourself. So how do you maneuver around a situation like this? Yeah, I try to be as clear as possible. First, Turning Point USA, the, the crux of what we do is educational. It's 501c3, no political at all. By law, we have to stay out of politics. Ki high school campuses, college campuses, Turning Point Academy, TPUSA Faith, Young Women's Leadership Summit, thousands and thousands of members. That's going to remain strong and growing and one of the largest organizations in the country, praise God. And then there's Charlie Kirk personally. I've endorsed Trump in 2024. I don't like his attacks on DeSantis. I don't support them because I actually like Governor DeSantis a lot, and I want him to be successful. But when I'm clear to my donors about this, you know, we've lost, I'd say, probably 10 or 12 major donors saying, I don't like the factor behind Trump. I'm like, well, I'm sorry. Let me tell you why. First, he was a great president. Secondly, I want you to understand that Charlie Kirk and the Turning Point machine would not exist if it was not for how generous Donald Trump was to us throughout the years. Patrick, I was 24 years old sitting in the Oval Office as a non-college graduate getting invited on Air Force One. If I, if I would forget that, I mean, I would be the most ungrateful, short-sighted person to turn my back on the man who believed in me when I was not nearly as, you know, let's just say successful or popular as I am today. And so I, I have an obligation to him in the best possible way. I don't want to be one of those people that benefits and then turns the back. And I also have something to say about the, a lot of people talk about Trump's negatives. I hear about it all the time. But he has some virtues, some great virtues. He works relentlessly. I've never seen someone with as much energy as him. He loves the country. He's amazingly patriotic. He's very creative. And honestly, he was a fabulous president. And you might not have liked the tone, but look at where America was when he was president and the garbage that's going on now, it's a pretty easy choice. So what you just said is the loyalty. You're staying loyal to 100%. him when he was loyal to you. Yes, and what I also you, think he was a great president, and I believe in his ideas. I respect that. Yeah. Now, what do you say to people that say, well, that's great, Charlie. We respect that. But that's exactly what his problem is with Ron, because he thinks without himself, Ron would have never won. And that is why some people from MAGA believe that he is disloyal, unlike you. What do you say to those people? So... What you're asking is, what do I say to people that say that Trump gets mad at Ron because he's disloyal? Or yeah, no. So, so I'll have a conversation. I'll say, listen, guys, there's a reason why I'm in Florida. I mean, I lived in L.A. for 20-some years, and I yes. lived in Dallas for five years. We're in Florida. We're in Florida because we watched all the governors during COVID, what they did. Ron crushed it. We felt like this is the place we're going to build a media headquarters. We moved out here. Kids, values, principles, yeah. all of that, we felt good here, right? And the beach in Florida is much better than the beach in Texas. I don't know if you've seen the beach in I, Texas. I, I, you're exactly. I love this state, by the yes. way. Florida and DeSantis has done a fabulous job. Phen phenomenal job, right? So then you'll have conversations with some folks, and they'll say, you know, look, DeSantis should run 2028. He shouldn't run 2024. He should just not even go in. You know, he should wait till 2028. This is a, a, a Trump thing to do. And Trump is upset because he's not announced that he's not running. He's kept it open. He's written the book, the playbook of writing a book, go out there and do a couple yeah. interviews, Pierce Morgan, all this stuff. This is a sign of this guy's about to run. So this is why some of the people from the Trump camp are saying he would be much better if he stayed out. Po possibly. I, I, yeah. will, I see it both ways. Let me, let me – because I'm friends with both of them. First of all, it is, it is a true statement that Ron DeSantis would not have been the Republican nominee without Trump. He was down 30 points to Adam Putnam in the polls. Putnam had all the, I think it's Adam Putnam is the name. He raised all the money. He was Chamber of Commerce selected, and DeSantis got the endorsement, and he became the nominee. That, that, there's a lot of truth to that. And so Trump understandably feels like, hey, man, like, I really helped you here, right? Look at the headline of the Tampa Bay Times. This is a left-wing paper. Fueled by Trump, Ron DeSantis easily beats Adam Putnam. Despite $37 million spent on the primary. 
more than twice what DeSantis did, right? Mm. So there's a lot of truth to that, and people forget that, okay? Now, at the same time, though, DeSantis is his own man, and he's been a great governor with his own record, and he's done an unbelievably good job. And so Trump started him on his legacy there. But it's kind of an interesting thing, right? It's like, I kind of made you who you are, wait your turn, and DeSantis said, oh, well, you got me past the primary, but you didn't make me a good governor, right? And so that's DeSantis's claim. Here's where I come down on it, though. My advice to Ron DeSantis would be, as of right now, you will not be the nominee. Trump is gaining support. This indictment helps him. It validates every core argument that Trump has, which is the system is against me. <laughs> Therefore, I'm, gonna, I'm such a threat. They're going to try to take me out. In a Republican primary, you know, that plays really, really well. I'm still an outsider. I'm still an outsider, <laughs> right? Even though I'm, a form, I'm the former president running as a rebel, right? So it helps him tremendously. But I personally don't want to see a nasty primary, but I don't get what I want. It's going to be a nasty primary. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try to referee it the best I can as friends with both of them, also wearing a MAGA hat throughout it as Trump 2024 with my commitment to his candidacy and what he wants to do for the country. But if Ron DeSantis wins, if Ron DeSantis runs, he'll raise a bunch of money, and I hope, you know, we'll elevate the discourse. And if and when he loses, which I believe he would lose to Trump, I hope he endorses him question for you this is the last question on this one this no i'm happy to go this one this one so so if you were him and you beat putnam 37 million to half you didn't have the money that you raised trump comes and endorses you would you even signal that you're running or would you come out and say i'm not running this time around what would you do if that was you i'd probably run because there's this kind of big shadow of a very big man chris christie of the man who never ran and he was supposed to be president in 2012. You might remember he was kind of like the darling of the yeah. Republican party. And, you know, then he hugged Obama. And the by the way, you know, you know what's crazy? You know what's crazy? Because I think it's going to be tough for uh, Christie to cross that bridge. The bridge might be yeah, exactly. closed. Yeah, it might not hold his weight. Um, and so, I'm sorry, that's mean, but it's so true. I mean, he's like 200 pounds overweight. Like, dude, you've had like a decade to lose the weight. It's not that hard. Just like stop eating carbs. Um, and so anyway, the... That that kind of that, that kind of shadow is folklore in conservative world. I hear it all the time, because Christie was a popular governor who won in a state that previously was not as favorable. And so I think if I was there in politics, the rule is it's better to run and lose than to not run at all and be forgotten. It's it, like it's better to the way, love and loss than never to have love. Charlie, at all. this is why people like you, though. Okay, so you're you're in a tough spot here. I had no idea what direction you were going to go, by the way, when I asked those questions. Because you're, you're being super loyal to the man who helped you during a time where you're 24 years old, Oval Office, all these things that you're talking about, you're trying to get your business going, and then you know, it is where it's at today. But you're maintaining a good relationship with DeSantis, and you're saying if, he, if you had to be in his position, you would still run. Correct. So in a way, but at the same time, you are wearing the MAGA 2024 yes. hat. So Rahm Emanuel said the same thing to Obama in 04, when he's like, hey, you got all this momentum after the DNC speech. What are you going to do? Like, what's the likelihood that another moment like this is going to happen to you? You're going to be forgotten about. And the resume DeSantis has the last two and a half, three years of what he did under COVID. It's impressive. It's, it's more than impressive. It's number one on the leader's That's bulletin. That's correct, yes. But that doesn't mean anything to the fact that this guy named Donald is going to come That's right. f- at him in ways he's never experienced before. And it, will, it might toughen him. Remember, Ronald Reagan ran multiple times for the Republican presidential nomination before actually being the nominee. Ronald Reagan primaried a sitting president. We forget this. Gerald Ford, the unelected president, only one in American history. He primaried him in 1976 and almost won the nomination brought it to the convention floor, and then Gerald Ford won in kind of an inside deal, and then Ronald Reagan, of course, won the nomination in 1980 and won a landslide election. And so you asked me a very specific question, if I was him. And so I, I gave you a specific answer. It's better to run and lose than not run and be forgotten. Will he lose? Oh, yeah. Trump will, I mean, absent a black swan event or massive amounts of Republican primary voters you know, changing their worldview in the next nine months, which I don't think is exactly going to happen. I have a really good pulse of the grassroots and the conservative grassroots. They love Trump. This indictment has made them furious. They're ready for action. And they look at Donald Trump as a symbol more than a man. He is a symbol 
of abuse of the powerful, the powerful coming after the normal person and abusing them. Now, Tr Trump is not a normal person. He's a billionaire, but he's become kind of this larger than life martyr where people who get fired because their factory went to China or somebody that gets you know, terminated because they said something politically incorrect. Trump is a now manifestation of the powerful using their powerful unjustly. You might disagree with that representation, but it's yeah. how millions of Republican primary voters view it. How much does this infuriate um, a Hillary Clinton that she wishes she had this kind of a following and this kind of a admiration that she just cannot get? How much does this irritate her? I mean, I could, I could do a whole hour on Hillary Clinton. Yeah, she's a very broken person. Um, and Donald Trump largely broke her. Her whole life was about becoming president. Her whole life. From when she went to Main East High School in Chicago, when she went to Wellesley, her whole life was in preparation. Her marriage to Bill Clinton, what a con that was, right? From her running the bimbo squad for Bill, which was literally the same thing that they're indicting Donald Trump for. Bill Clinton had a whole operation, a whole team, you could look it up, bimbo squad, where they were, just went and they went to women that Donald Trump um, had, uh, not Donald Trump, that Bill Clinton had sex with, and then they would just do NDA after NDA after NDA. And it was well known in the 90s, and people forget about it. Yep. See, Giuliani says Clinton's in, uh, employed a bimbo squad. You go down, politico.com, 2016. Yes, Hillary was an enabler, right? She was the chief architect. She was the Michael Cohen of Bill Clinton's NDA operation in the 90s. And look, I'll be very honest. I don't love the argument, well, Democrats do those crimes, and why should Republicans be applied? Because I just think it's overdone. In this case, it's actually a good argument, which is that Bill Clinton mastered the private payoff NDA. Like he was, he was the best at it. He would go sleep with a woman. She would go threaten to go to the news. And then he would throw the bimbo squad and settle for a hundred thousand dollars. Right. They never indicted him.